invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. I'd like to read these two portions of this book, one from chapter 33, verses 18 through 23, and then chapter 34, verses 5 through 9. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 18. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, And you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Let's pray. Father, we've just read this amazing account from your word. And I would ask you that you might be pleased to show us your glory. Don't want to ask that lightly without understanding that it would shake our lives. Lord, I don't expect to see it visibly but you've displayed your glory to us in the revealing of your Son. And we want to know him and see him from your word with the eyes of our hearts enlightened. And I pray that you would use this morning to open up for us a bit more of your word, that we might behold you, not for what we would want you to be, but for who you really are. I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. 
There are many important questions that we ask just as humans. We ask them at different points in our life to some degree, I trust. Perhaps you've wondered at times if God hears you in your agonies. As you're struggling, you wonder, will God respond to me? On what basis will he respond to me in the midst of my pain? Would he, the one who owns everything, who created everything, care about me in the moment of distress? Does he hear me? Does he know my struggles? Does he care? Might be compelled to ask questions like, what is God really like? The one who made the world, what is he like really? Although he's infinite, he's definite. He's not just some blob that is unknowable to us. He's somebody. He exists. What is his existence? What does he show of himself to us? We might be compelled to ask, what does this God expect of me? What is true worship? What is it like to come before this God and treat him in the way that he deserves, in the way that he expects? We might ask questions like, how does God work in this world? Is he absent or is he present? Is he hindered in any way from relating to us and in this world? Each one of those questions has significant influence in our lives depending on how they are answered. If there is a God, which we hold that there is, we know that there is, what is this God like and how am I to relate to him? And how does he engage with my problems? Because we all have problems. If you don't, you're not human. The Bible answers these questions. It answers them in ways that are satisfying and in ways that compel us to trust because there are times where we do not have them answered to the depth that we would want, but there's enough of an answer. We hold, as Christians, that there is a book that addresses the fundamental questions of human life the fundamental questions about who God is and what he is like and how we are to engage with him and how he engages with us. It does not address them with best guesses. They are not man's best attempt to answer them. The Bible is God's book. It is his revelation to us. It reveals him to those who are willing and enabled by him to listen. It is for those who have humble hearts who are able to receive the answers to the basic questions of life. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time. It has been read worldwide, and yet it's also been burned, banned, used as toilet paper, buried, defiled, maligned, scoffed at, refused. And yet, over the existence of this book, It has been transformative, given hope, 
It has changed murderers to saints, adulterers to faithful people, liars to truth-tellers, hopeless and despairing to hope-filled and joyful. It's the most amazing book in the world. It's made up of 66 books. Each one is a key component of the whole. And yet it's not a dictionary or an encyclopedia. It addresses the reader with stories, with history, with narrative, with law, with letters, with prophecy, with accounts of miracles, with selective biographies. And it encompasses the human existence with human genres. But it is not man-made. It claims for itself to be the very word of God, breathed out by him and inspired. It cuts to the core of the human heart. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. As we speak, this book is being translated into new languages. It is used on every continent. It changes the lives, has changed, and is changing lives of millions across space, time, and culture. For about 3,400 years, until this very moment, this book has only gained steam in the influence that it has wrought in this world, and it shows no sign of stopping. And so we spend time in this book. We read it. We study it. And it's such an abiding conviction about the Bible that we believe it is worthwhile for us to study it individually as well as collectively, to open this book and to see what it says. And we don't do it just in a cursory glance. This is not going through high school English and saying to your teacher, I read the book when you scanned it in five minutes. It is a book that we labor with intensity of devotion to understand what it means. We open it up realizing God has spoken to us and we want to know what he says. We take it seriously. We want to get every drop of wisdom from God's lips. And so today, we pick up this book, and we study the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, a book that is long. It's 40 chapters. It has 57 pages in my Bible, and there are no pictures, no tables, no charts, and the words are small. It's a book written about 3,400 years ago by a man named Moses, who has become perhaps one of the most well-known human figures of all time. Of all the billions of people who have existed, Moses has one of the most enduring legacies. It's a book of grand adventures, people in slavery, a baby in a basket, a pharaoh, a nation, plagues, laws, detailed instruction for a mobile religious building, millions of people led in a miraculous way into a wilderness in the Middle East, a mountain called Sinai, a nation called Egypt, and a people called the Israelites. If you've been through Sunday school, and our class just recently has finished, the kids' class has finished Exodus, and so they know more about it than you do. This book is a wonderful book for kids' Sunday school, and it's a wonderful book for adults. It is rich. It's a book about a man named Moses, but way more importantly, it's a book about a God named Yahweh. 
And we look into this book to grasp some significant truths about human existence, about the way that God works in this world, about how God deals with our problems, about what God is up to. And so as we live in the year 2022, with our own problems, questions, national crises, personal crises, our own joys and sorrows, our own likes and dislikes, and sometimes our own law and morality, we're going to look at this book that is ancient and yet ever new because it bears on the questions that we have to ask as humans. I want to spend this opening message on the book of Exodus, preaching the whole book, chapter 1 to chapter 40. Won't be able to go through it all, but I've chosen for us to consider five words that I think encapsulate the message of this book. Now, there are lots of words I could have chosen and left out, and so this is certainly not exhaustive, and you could think of some others that may have been better than the ones I chose, but it will at least get us into this book and get our feet wet. And I hope not just in an academic way, but in a way that lets us know God has something to say to us from this book of Exodus. So the five words, I'll give them to you now and we'll walk through them. Five words, and, Lord, no, K-N-O-W, law, and presence. I think these summarize to some degree the book of Exodus. Let's begin with the first word, and, A-N-D. Turn to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. It doesn't show up in our English translations because it would be a bit awkward to put it this way, but the very first word of Exodus in the Hebrew is the word and. If I were to give you a literal translation, it would say, and these are the names. In fact, the Hebrew title for the book of Exodus is names. They would take the first word of the book and make that the title of the book would be and names, but they shorten it just to names. And, it's a word we use all the time. It's used in so many of our sentences, yet it is one of the most important words of this book because it shows us that this is a book that continues what went before it. Exodus, of course, is the second book of the Bible. If you look back across the page to the end of Genesis, you'll see how the book of Genesis ends. Verse 22 says, So Joseph remained in Egypt. And if you look down to verse 26, it says, So Joseph died, being 110 years. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And if you just go into Exodus, it's the continuation of that. And it says, And these are the names of the son of Israel, who came to Egypt with Jacob. In verse 5, it says, Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. This is part two of the Bible. Part one is Genesis. Part two is Exodus. Part three, Leviticus, and so on. This is 
the first of five books of the Bible called the Torah or the Pentateuch. Pentateuch just meaning something like five-part book. Torah meaning law or instruction. It covers Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's a small observation to say that a book begins with the word and, but for us, it means so much more than just the first word of the book. It's a little bit like a small light in a pitch-dark cave. It shows that there's a way out. There's something significant about that light, and there's something significant about this word. It's significant that Exodus continues what goes before it, and after Exodus, Exodus kind of ends on a cliffhanger, and it gets picked up in Leviticus. And Leviticus ends, and it gets picked up by Numbers. And Numbers ends, and gets picked up by Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy ends, and gets picked up by Joshua. You go through the whole Old Testament, and you come to Malachi, and Malachi ends on a cliffhanger, and gets picked up by Matthew, and then the rest of the Gospels, then Acts, and then the letters, and you come to Revelation, and if you're paying attention, you find out that the Bible is one long-running history of God's work in this world. The Bible, even though it's composed of 66 books, is not just a mishmash of random books. It's not like taking Winnie the Pooh and the Lord of the Rings and putting them together in a single volume. It is something that is cohesive, something that underscores the basic theme of our world. So from Genesis to Revelation, we have the authoritative, God-given history of the world, because it begins with the creation of the world, and it ends with the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And so we have it all from start to finish. And yet we would no way say that this history is all-encompassing in the sense that it details every historical act. It does not have every event recorded. So what do we have? Because we have a selective history. Well, again, the importance of the word and. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. That brings us back to the book of Genesis, which from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50 is the unfolding of the story of a family. The family of Abraham, who had Isaac, who had Jacob, who had 12 sons who ended up in Egypt. And so when the book begins with this little word, and, it shows that it's the continuation of the story of the God who made the whole world, and yet the world fell into sin. But God is not overcome by sin. It is not as though when the world fell into sin in Genesis chapter 3, God threw up his hands and had no idea what to do. The rest of the Bible is the reality that God has a plan and he knows what to do when sin enters the world. Genesis 3, through the rest of the Bible, shows that God is going to be unfolding his plan in a very sequential very important, very specific way. And the way he is going to do it is beginning through this family of Abraham. And so as Abraham's family, identified in Exodus 1-1 as the sons of Israel, comes into the 
nation of Egypt, we look at it from the lens of the reality that God is working about redemption in a world that has been drenched in sin. This continuation of how God is working in the world is the unfolding of his redemption. And as we come to Exodus, we're going to find that it fits hand in glove with the whole of his plans. So as we study Exodus, we can't disconnect it from Genesis or from the books that come after all the way to Revelation. We learn in these plans that God has for the world that history is heading somewhere. History begins with the creation of the world, and it continues into Exodus, and it continues after Exodus, and we realize that history is not some random stream cutting its way through the terrain of the world wherever it wants. It is running in a direction that is always directed by God, always overseen by Him and His sovereignty. He is the one bringing all to pass. History is heading somewhere. Some people would say, sure, it's heading somewhere. It's heading towards some socialistic utopia or some capitalistic utopia or some Aryan or some Islamic utopia. And we say an adamant, no, it's not running towards any of those things. History is running its course according to God's sovereign plan, the unfolding of his will to make Jesus Christ king of the nations, king of the universe, worshipped by all. That's where history is running. And Exodus slots right into that history. And so we need to understand this book so we know how history unfolds according to God's plan. And is a very important word. It means God is continuing what he has started. The second word, Lord, Lord. The second word that unfolds the content of Exodus is Lord. In our Bibles, you see it all the time in the Old Testament, that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And we know that that is a placeholder for the name that God gave himself. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, we have Moses at the burning bush. And Moses is being commissioned by God to go set Israel free from their slavery. And in 3.13, God is answering the question of who this God is who is sending Moses to deliver them. Chapter 3, verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am that I am. This name of God came to be revered as so holy, so significant, that people feared 
taking it on their lips in a way that was unworthy of the name. And so as the history of the Bible came to unfold and we see it passed down from generation to generation, there came a time where those who were writing the Bible decided that instead of pronouncing the name of God, they would put in a kind of a replacement, Lord or Adonai, so that when the Bible was read, no one would say the holy name of God because it is so holy and to be revered with such an awe that if you misuse it, you need to be concerned for your life. And so when we find capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in our Bible, it is a placeholder for the name that God gave to himself, the name of Yahweh, which is rooted in the verb to be. And as God defines it, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. And this is the answer to the question, what or who is God and what is he like? Well, there's no one better to ask than God himself. If you want to know what he is like, let him define himself for you. And as he defines himself for you, he gives himself a name that encapsulates the seriousness and the self-existence and the power of who he is. And he defines it as I am who I am. Imagine going up and asking someone, who are you? And they say, I am who I am. If it's a mere person, you would think they were crazy. But when God gives that name to himself, it shows his absolute self-existence, his absolute power, and his absolute throwing off any shackles anybody who would put on him to try to define him as they want him to be instead of letting him be who he is. And so the very name of God pervades this book of Exodus, and he reveals himself as this God named Yahweh. Who is God and what is he like is an important question for us because we are prone in ourselves to want to shape God into the image that we want him to be. We have ideas of what we want God to be like. We use this phrase, I like to think of God as, and you fill in the blank. Those words should never come from our lips. It's not how you like to think of God. It's how he likes to be thought of that's important to you. Think of God as he really is. Accept him for who he is and what he is like, for he has revealed himself And anything else that we make up is some idolatrous format of God and not the true one. In the book of Genesis, we meet God as creator and covenant-making God. In Genesis 12, he makes a promise to Abraham that in Abraham all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. In Genesis, we meet God as the one who brings judgment He sends the flood. He's the one who is very involved in the world that he makes. He's the God who destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, but was willing to spare it if there were just ten righteous people there. But there's so much more to learn about God. So much more to say about who he is and what he is like. The rest of the Bible reveals him to us, and the book of Exodus reveals him to us. And one of the primary attributes of God that we learn about in the book of Exodus is that God is a delivering God. 
for he delivers his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of their oppression. He is a God who delivers. So who is this God and what is he like? Well, the book of Exodus tells us not to make him in our own image, but to accept him for who he is and find out that he is the God who delivers his people. Exodus, a book defined by a few words, and, and Lord. The third word is no. No. Exodus shows us that God is a God to be known. He is to be known in judgment, or he is to be known in deliverance. First, he is to be known in judgment. I hope you don't know him this way. The key altercation in the book of Exodus is between Moses and Pharaoh, but it's really not exactly between Moses and Pharaoh. It's between Pharaoh and God. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, as Moses has come to Pharaoh and tells him, let my people go, in Exodus 5, 2, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh didn't know who the Lord was. He is about to. Exodus 7, verse 5. If you're unfamiliar with this book, great plagues begin to afflict Egypt until they let God's people Israel go out of slavery. In Exodus 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Chapter 8, verse 10. And he said, Tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Again and again, God reveals himself in his mighty hand to Egypt so that they would know who this God is. Pharaoh will not be able to say at the end of the plagues, who is the Lord? He will know him. In a very profound way, he will know this God. He will know Yahweh. He will know his mighty hand and he will know the plagues that he sends on those who resist his will. Pharaoh will know. 
Exodus reveals to us that God is a God to be known. And it shows us that God is a God to be known in judgment. But he's also to be known in deliverance. The key pursuit of a relationship in the book of Exodus is between God and his people, Israel. And Israel needs to know who this God is. Look at chapter 6, verses 2 through 8. Exodus 6, verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The people of Israel were to come to know this God who claimed them as his own. They were to know, that, know about God, not just know about him, but experience the reality and the power of his deliverance. And they were to know that this is the God who keeps his covenant to the point of delivering them out of slavery. God is a God to be known. His actions were such that they would know it was God who did it for them. Look at Exodus chapter 16, verse 6. Israel's been brought out of Egypt at this point, and they're in the wilderness. They're looking for food in Exodus 16, verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Israel needed to come to know this God, what he was like, and what he had done for them. And if we zoom out to the rest of the Bible, God has wrought a great deliverance. He's wrought a great deliverance for people who are sold to the slavery of sin. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, to bear the guilt and shame for sin, that those who trust in him could be forgiven and redeemed out of the slavery of sin. And he did that so that we could know him. We could know God is for us. We could know him in a real way, in a way that he acts on our behalf. 
I hope that as we get into Exodus, we will be reminded of our great God who delivers so we know him as that kind of God, as a delivering God, as a saving God. Because if you don't know him that way, you will still come to know him, but you will know him as a judging God, a God who stretches out his hand against you, and you will know that he is greater than all gods. John 17, 3, Jesus praying to his Father, and he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It is God's plan that people would know him in a saving way through his Son. Exodus reminds us of that. The fourth word to keep in mind about the book of Exodus is the word law. Law. This is that part of Exodus that you read through the first half of the book, and it's all these adventures, all these plagues, all the excitement, and then you come to the second half of the book, and that's where you get bogged down because there are all these laws. It begins, the book begins with Israel being brought from Egypt to Sinai. And when they get to Sinai, that's where the book slows down. In chapter 19, verse 1, It says, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. There at Sinai, God meets his people on the mountain in a terrifying way and gives them his law. They've been rescued, and now they need to be taught how to live as the people who belong to this holy God. And you know, in chapter 20, it gives the Ten Commandments, and then after that, it unfolds more and more laws. At the center of the law is the Ten Commandments, where it forbids idolatry, Murder, coveting, blasphemy, adultery. And we find in the law that God's holy character is revealed. And he reveals to his people the kind of character they are to possess is to be similar to his. They are to be holy. And it reveals that God is not indifferent to our behaviors. He's not indifferent to our heart attitudes. He's not indifferent to our lifestyles and our choices and he has a particular, specific, and high standard. And God has the law written in tablets of stone to be brought to the people of Israel. And it is to be shown that his standard cannot be manipulated. It cannot be crossed out. You cannot find loopholes. You can't convince yourself in your own mind that his word is something other than it is and be right. It is to be unmanipulated by humans' hands. We cannot take erasers and wipe it out, sledgehammers and smash it up. It remains fixed. And God, as the lawgiver, is unbribable, 
undeceivable, unimpeachable, and unavoidable, and he always holds office. And as this law is given, and you take it seriously, you come to fear this God who has just delivered you out of Egypt. And you realize we can't mess around. But the response of the people to this law is they ask Moses to tell God to stop talking to them because they're so fearful of him. And they expect that if they keep hearing his voice, they are going to die. And yet the people agree to do everything that the Lord has said. But you will find that their actions reflect our own actions. We are so quick to disregard God's ways. And in Exodus 32, Israel takes the easy way out and creates the golden calf. In Exodus 32.8, it says that they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And you can see their point because they've just heard the law of God and you can think, well, making our own golden calves will be a lot easier. It's always easier to follow a false god than a true one. But that comes with consequences. Our God is a law-giving God, and we will have to take his law seriously and let it evaluate our hearts. And we will find we come up short, and we find we need deliverance, not from the oppression and slavery of Pharaoh, but from the wrath of God. The fifth and final word is presence. Presence. A major portion of the second half of the book of Exodus is devoted towards excruciating detail of how to build a tent. It's the tabernacle. It describes the building of tables and altars and framing and curtains and the ark and the design. And if you read it and you have the patience to read that section, you have to come away with the conclusion that God at least takes this seriously. And again, as you zoom out to the big picture, you will find that the reason for this excruciating detail about the building of this tent is because this is going to be the place where God manifests his presence to the people of Israel. And he will not dwell just anywhere. It's been his goal since the corruption of Eden to come back and dwell among a people. And this is his plan. And he gives Israel the instructions for building this tabernacle to great degree. And at the very end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, it says in verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is a monumental moment in the history of Israel. God's presence has come to be among his people. But now you have to ask the question of, how do we live with God so close to us? That's what the book of Leviticus is about. And we're not going to answer that one right now. But that's a question for you. How do you live close to this fearsome God? The answer, of course, for us is not a tabernacle. It's not a set of laws. It's a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who took on flesh even though he had existed in eternity as the Son of God. And it says in John chapter 1 that he came to dwell among us. Jesus Christ now is the presence of God among us. And the question for us is not so much what do you do with the tabernacle or what do you do with the laws. It is now what do you do with Jesus Christ? And what does he tell? What does he say? He says, follow me. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Brothers and sisters, we don't look to a tabernacle or a pillar of cloud and fire. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ to find the God that we need to know, fear, and follow. I trust Exodus will help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, you have spoken to us again in your word. We realize that we are dealing with a God to be taken seriously. Help us not to trifle with you, Father. Help us to take your son seriously. Help us to know you. Help us to know what you're doing in this world and how you respond to us and how you engage with us. Help us to know you better with reverence and awe, with faith and trust, following our Lord. Thank you that you sent Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners. And now we want to follow him. And we remember him this morning and we pray in his name. Amen.